Hello and welcome to this special edition of My Lead Story. I'm Alex Regan and for this edition we're joined by BBC Russia editor and Leeds alum Steve Rosenberg. It's fair to say Steve has had quite a year. He's one of the only Western journalists to interview Europe's last dictator, Alexander Lukashenko. He was one of the first people to report on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also the death of former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Steve says the death of Gorbachev closes the book on the era of modern Russian history as the country enters a much darker chapter. He spoke to us in November about the year that changed Russia forever. I think I was woken up by a call from London to say that it, uh, it had just dropped on the, on the news wires that Putin had uh, appeared on Russian state television with an address to the nation announcing that he'd given the order for the start of what he continues to call the special military operation. And then, you know, the news operation rolls into action. You don't have time, really, to think at the time uh, about the enormity of what is happening. You have to get into the office, get on air, write the dispatch, uh, do the TV lives, breakfast news, and then the Today programme. And um, obviously, it was a very busy day. But by the end of the day, you know, in, in the in the few brief minutes you have to kind of pause and take in what has happened, it became clear to me that actually uh, the enormity of that event, that life wouldn't be the same, life couldn't be the same after the 24th of February, that what President Putin had decided to do would change things forever and that Russia would be different. And it really felt in the days that followed that, that Russia had become a different place. I didn't recognise suddenly, um, the Moscow I'd known. The Moscow, Moscow became the capital of special military operation Russia. You know, the letter Z, the, the symbol of the Russian uh, offensive, began appearing on billboards, on some cars. Um, you know, as Western sanctions were introduced, international brands began to disappear. From, uh, from the Russian market, from, from Russian shopping centres. Uh, there were fewer Western products in the supermarkets. You could see this change. And it, it was a huge shock to the Russian public too. Now, for, for months, many Russians here, uh, I think, didn't want to accept or recognise what was happening. You know, this was something happening on a te their television screens a long way away. Um, but now that um, hundreds of thousands of Russian citizens have been mobilised by President Putin, uh, people's sons, husbands and brothers have been sent off to the front line. Suddenly that's brought the war much closer to home, to, to people here. And so that has meant that Russian society is more anxious, there's more alarm in Russian society now um, as we move into winter. And but going back to what I was saying, it, this feels like a different place. You know, I, if I look back over the last 30 years, yes, it's been, it's been a tumultuous time, right? The 90s were crazy. You had millions of people pushed into poverty by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, many people went for months without being paid. Uh, and yet, many people had some hope that life would get better. They, cl they clung on to hope. You know, at least 
there was freedom of speech and at least you know you could switch on some television channels and they would be criticizing the government um, but uh, that hope has virtually disappeared now um, as uh, in 2022 and Russia's entering a, a, a time of great uncertainty um, with the economy uh, under huge pressure here with Russia fighting in Ukraine um, the stability that President Putin did bring the country in the early 2000s uh, is at risk of disappearing. I mean, discussing uh, what you were there about the, the trepidation and the fear among the population of Russia, I, I'm very aware that you yourself have been um, subject to intimidatory tactics. Uh, I, I was watching one of your pieces from, I think it was 18 months ago or so, where the Russian authorities were following you while you were reporting in Siberia. I mean, how, how do you cope with that pressure? I think you basically accept it. I mean, very often uh, on trips out of Moscow, uh, we have been, you know, followed. Um, and it, it comes with the job, really. Um, I think it's not a command that, that's gone out from, from the Kremlin, you know, follow the BBC team. No, I think when, when local authorities realise there's a... a a group of foreign journalists coming to their city or their region, then very often they decide um, just to keep an eye uh, on what, what they're doing, who, the, who they're talking to. Um, and you just have to get on with your job and uh, try to make sure that the people that you're speaking to aren't put in any uh, danger. Um, but the, the, the story you're talking about, that was uh, Krasnoyarsk. And the... the, the the surveillance was so overt and so large-scale. I mean, we were jotting down the number plates of the cars that were following us. And it was, I don't know, I can't remember how many cars were involved in this operation, but there were lots of cars. The number plates kept repeating. It, it was such a large operation that <laughs> it actually became part of the story for us. And at one point, I, I went up to one of the cars, knocked on the... The, the driver's window and asked why they were following us and he denied uh, that he had been following us um, but he clearly had uh, but um, you know we, we don't want to make ourselves the story uh, often but that was an occasion where the the, the, the surveillance was so overt that it became part of the story yes yes and I mean uh, uh the fact that you went up to one of these cars and actually asked them if they were following you, I, I think that shows real, um, real, real grit. And I mean, one one thing that I was astonished by was that interview that you did with Alexander Lukashenko, Europe's last dictator, and you really took him to task. Like you didn't, you didn't pull your punches, and. You got him to admit his regime had beat political protesters after a discredited election. You got him to admit that Belarusian troops helped migrants illegally cross the border with the EU. And, I mean, looking at Lukashenko, he's an imposing man feared by so many people. How, how do you prepare for that sort of interview? Because I'm not sure that I would have um, been... Uh, I don't think I would have reacted in the same way as you did. It's, it's difficult, right? especially if you're doing an interview in a foreign language, right? So he had the language uh, advantage, of course. Um, 
And it was a, the Lukashenko interview was a strange one because we, we didn't really expect it would happen. We were covering uh, at the time the migrant crisis on the border of Belarus and Poland. And we put in a request to interview Lukashenko, not expecting that he'd agree, but he did agree. So we rushed back to Minsk and we had a couple of days maximum to get ready for this interview. I had, I had to buy a suit, I, buy shoes, I had nothing with me. We were, we were dressed for the, you know, for the mud and the, the outdoors of the, the border area. Uh, but in terms of preparation, it's a team effort. It's very much a team effort. So my producer, Will, and I uh, would have these kind of training sessions where he'd be Lukashenko and I'd be me and we'd walk around a lake practicing and I'd, I'd, I'd come up with questions and he'd answer as he thought Lukashenko might. And uh, it, was a, it was a good way of kind of um, uh, gaming out what, what might happen. But of course, when you're in the interview situation, you, you know, you arrive at the presidential palace. I shouldn't really say presidential because uh, <laughs> Europe doesn't recognize him as the president. Um, let's say the leader of Belarus. Uh, when you arrive at his palace, you know, it's very imposing. and You're led, into, led through long corridors and into a, a giant hall. And then in comes Mr. Lukashenko, who is considerably taller than me. <laughs> um, uh, and you sit down and then, you know, the interview begins. And it was such a strange experience because at some points he was acting as the bully, clearly trying to bully me. At other, at other moments he seemed to be like a, a three-year-old child. It was such a weird experience. And you have to try to... Uh, keep things on track and interrupt. You know, you can't let him come out with this information, streams of it, without interrupting. It was very interesting watching the Belarusian state television edit of our interview because they managed to edit out uh, most of my interruptions. So the version you got on Belarusian state television was basically a monologue from Lukashenko and lots of me nodding. <laughs> uh, whereas the, the the real version of the interview was much more of a kind of a ding-dong, a conversation. Can you talk us through how you ended up getting your job as Russia editor at the BBC? When I was a kid, uh, I always knew I wanted to work for the BBC. It sounds strange, doesn't it? But I watched a lot of telly when I was young, just sat there watching, <laughs> watching the BBC. And I, for some reason, it really made an impression on me. So I knew I kind of wanted to to work for the BBC and I used to write loads of letters as a kid to different parts of the organisation, to radio and television and domestic and, and, and world service and I used to go up and visit different parts of the BBC and I really got the BBC bug. Anyway, uh, in sort of the mid-80s when Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union, this, this, this sort of secretive empire started opening up. There was a lot about the USSR on the television and uh, I got interested in, in, in Russia and, and, and the Soviet Union. And uh, when I went to university, uh, I thought, well, I'll start studying Russian. I, stu I studied uh, from scratch there. So it was a five year course uh, and I found it absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, when I graduated in 91, I went to Moscow um, to teach English. That was my first job. Uh, four months later, the USSR fell apart. So it was an amazing time to be there. 
But I knew I still wanted to, to work in broadcasting and I managed to get a job in Moscow uh, amid all the chaos of the collapse of communism with an American television company, CBS News, just answering the telephone. That was 91. Uh, and then I became a, uh, an assistant producer there. Um, then I, for, for a year or so, I, I, I set up a teletext company, Russia's first teletext company. Oh, wow. Uh, that's yeah, that, that's a whole other story. Because I, I, I worked at CFAX. Uh, I had had summer jobs at uh, the, the BBC's teletext service, CFAX. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, I got a grant from the European Union, would you believe, and some university uh, friends came over and, and we did this teletext service. I got a, a deal with Russian state television bought some equipment and we set up and we did teletext russia's first teletext <laughs> service we made nothing we didn't make any money at all it was it was really good fun we did it in russian and we did it in english um and all the i remember all the kind of the the russian state television officials who were who were kind of peering through the door thought well these foreigners must be making millions you know of course this was at a time when when <laughs> Uh, Russian oligarchs were making millions. Of course, mm. we made nothing. We made no, uh, you know, and uh, and the whole project sort of came to an end. And I went back to CBS, and then in '97, got a job as a producer at the BBC in Moscow, uh, and then three years later became a reporter and then a correspondent. Um, and um, yeah, and then uh, spent basically about 30 years living and working in Russia. I had four years um, as as Berlin correspondent. But most of the last three decades spent um, here in Moscow, yeah. And did you imagine during your time at Leeds, you know, looking at the news of Gorbachev and Perestroika, that you'd eventually end up sitting around a piano singing with him? <laughs> no, I, absolutely not. I mean, absolutely not. I mean, uh, obviously, in the, in the mid-80s, uh, Gorbachev was on our TV screens so much you know he was one of the most powerful people in the world he was clearly trying to change the world um and uh he was an historic figure at that time i never dreamt that uh, i'd actually get to meet the man and i first met him i think it was 1996 so i was working for cbs and gorbachev had been out of power for for five years, but he was trying to make a comeback. He was running against Boris Yeltsin in the Russian presidential election. And he had no chance of winning. I mean, polls showed that he, you know, he lacked support uh, amongst the Russian public. But we went on a trip uh, to, together to southern Russia on the campaign trail. That was my first experience of meeting Mikhail Gorbachev. And he came across then, I remember, as a very nice person, right? a, a human being with a sense of humour. Um, and I'll never forget, you're sitting in the, in the hotel, I think it may have been in Rostov, the Intourist Hotel, and uh, Gorbachev and his team invited our crew to sit with them uh, one evening, and the band struck up and started playing Yesterday. And I thought that was such an appropriate song for someone who's basically, whose political career uh, was over. And, and the election showed that because he, only, he got less than 1% of the vote in that presidential election. Um, but I, I never imagined that I actually become a correspondent would go on to interview Gorbachev. And I interviewed him, um, I think, five times. Uh, and you mentioned playing the piano for him. That, I'll never forget that moment. Uh, because after one interview, 
um, Gorbachev had a piano in the corner of his office and our camera operator, Rachel, uh, pointed to the piano and said, Mr. Gorbachev, do you play? And he said, no, I don't. Uh, do any of you? And, uh, and I said, I played. So he said, sit down and play something. So <laughs> I sat down and sort of started playing um, uh, Moscow Nights, I think it was, famous kind of Russian song. And um, Gorbachev started singing. And um, for the next sort of 10 minutes or so, he was sort of singing various songs. And I, I, I learned more about the man in those sort of musical minutes than I did in, in the whole political interview I just recorded. He really came across as very warm-hearted, very um, sincere, uh, and clearly someone who loved his wife. His wife, Raisa, had died a few years before, and he was singing some of her favourite songs too. So it was, it was a special moment. And, I mean, it's... I mean, with everything that's gone on this year, obviously there's been a huge amount that you've been reporting on, but, I mean, it's important to remember that you also reported on the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. How did that feel, having met the man so many times and him being such a huge presence in your life before the BBC and uh, your, your career? It was a very sad moment. Um, you know, and it really felt like the end of an era. Two events this year have felt like the end of an era, to be honest. The first was the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It felt like that was a watershed moment. And then, um, several months later, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, it felt like that whole page of Russian history, modern Russian history, had been turned. Uh, and, and, and now Russia is really entering, a, I think, a darker chapter. And because I'd met the man on several occasions and had come to respect him very much, he, he had made many mistakes in his political career, but as I say, he, I think he was a sincere man uh, who wanted uh, the best for his country. Uh, it, it was a sad moment. I'd actually been um, on leave for three weeks and I'd come back uh, to, to Moscow and I think a couple of days later he died. So it was a very busy time, um, but I remember the day of his uh, funeral uh, and it really felt, as I was sort of standing with the crowds who were queuing up um, to pass by his coffin as he lay in state, and then at the, the cemetery in Moscow um, as he was laid to rest, it really felt like this was the end of what had been a very dramatic chapter in Russian history and a, perhaps a rare, a rare chapter when, when Russia had tried to open up to the world and had taken steps towards um, freedom of speech and creating a democratic society. But Russia now was really moving in a very different direction. That decision to invade Ukraine has, has completely kind of um, overshadowed them. How do you see it ending? At the moment, I don't. Uh, I, I don't see how it ends at the moment. Um, I don't see any desire on the part of the Kremlin to end things. I think there's probably a realisation that it has not gone according to plan. The, the, the so-called special military operation was only supposed to last a few days, weeks maximum. And now it's, uh, what, we're into the ninth month already. But I get the feeling that um, Vladimir Putin is in this so deep and he's getting going deeper 
And he still believes, I think, that he can secure uh, some kind of victory over Ukraine and, uh, and over the West as well. And I don't see at the moment the desire on the part of, of Kiev to end this. Um, their counteroffensive has been pretty successful, um, you know, supported by um, Western weapons. Um, there's a de determination on the part of the Ukrainian government to get back the territory that was taken from it uh, by Russia. So at the moment, I don't see an end. Um, but, you know, <laughs> what does history show us? History shows us that most wars end. Wars end eventually. Uh, and what the situation be when this one ends, I don't know. I don't know how things will look. And, I mean, obviously it's been a bit of a perilous time being a Western journalist in Russia. And, I mean, in March you were ordered to temporary, temporarily pause reporting from Russia after a draconian laws were put, brought in place uh, to offer jail terms to journalists for spreading fake news. I mean, what was it like receiving that call from London and what did your family think when they heard that news? It was a difficult time because, yes, there was the shock of the invasion. And you're right, um, new, new laws had been passed um, in Russia um, about against spreading so-called fake news about the Russian armed forces and about discrediting the Russian armed forces. And so uh, London decided to that we should take a pause while they studied the laws and tried to work out what kind of implications they would, there might be for us as foreign journalists broadcasting. Uh, and I think, yes, we were off air maybe, maybe three days or so. And that was quite frustrating uh, because obviously we wanted to tell the story of what was happening. But it was understandable, I think, that, um, that uh, our managers back home uh, wanted to work out what the implications might be for us. Uh, for them, our safety was, was paramount. But we wanted to get back, air, back on air as soon as possible, and we were able to do that. And we have stayed on air since then. I mean, we've been here ever since. Um, and I hope that we can stay as long as possible, because I think it's important to be able to tell uh, the story of what's going on here as much as possible. It's not easy. Um, and perhaps it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, to, to work here, but it's still possible. And uh, as long as we're able to do that and allowed to do that, uh, we'll, we'll do so. Um, because, yeah, it's important to, to, to keep open um, channels of communication and also to tell the story of what's happening here on the ground. Do you ever fear that it, it is going to end and end abruptly because obviously your colleague Sarah Rainsford was barred from uh, Russia and uh, I mean there, there are numbers of Western journalists who've been prevented from returning and you've built a life in Russia in Moscow. Uh, I mean do you, do you ever fear that that life that you've known will be ripped from under you? You're right, I have built a life here. I've left, lived more than half of my life here in, in, in Russia. My wife is Russian. Um, uh, I accept that this could happen. Right? I would be silly not to accept that. 
Um, and we live week by week, really. You, you never know what's around the corner. Um, it almost feels as if from February the 20th, since February the 24th, we've been falling, 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 and you don't know when you'll finally land. Uh, you know, we're in free fall at the moment. So yes, anything could happen at any moment. Um, and, um, but if you worry about that too much, then it will be very difficult to operate. You know, I think um, we accept that. I accept that there is this um, instability and we don't know what's going to happen. It's totally unpredictable. But working with the, the great team I have here, the small team, but great team, and, you know, with the support of my family and uh, <laughs> having the piano to kind <laughs> of help, help me relax, uh, and get away from this crazy situation, that kind of all helps me get through uh, the the difficult days. There's a lot of work. Work really dominates life at the moment. Um, but I think it's important not to let the unpredictability of the situation get to you too much. I accept that uh, anything could happen here, but um, uh, I try to try not that let, try not to let that get in the way too much. And I mean, you just mentioned the piano. You're, you've got a bit of a cult following on social media for your musical tributes to famous people who've passed away and also being a Eurovision super fan uh, and being able to play every single Eurovision winner uh, off by heart since 1956. Firstly, how? <laughs> and secondly, um, I mean... It's when, sad, when, isn't it? Yeah, it's sad. It's, it's absolutely... <laughs> no, it's not. It's absolutely astonishing. I mean, I, I, I know so many people who uh, have a love of Eurovision, but yours just takes it to another level. When, when did this sort of happen? It's, it's less a talent, I think, and more a medical condition. I... I <laughs> I told you that I used to watch a lot of telly and I fell in love at an early age with the Eurovision Song Contest because it was one of the few programmes my parents would allow me to stay up late to watch, right? And um, there was something about it I just, I just really liked. And um, I started sort of um, trying to play Eurovision songs on the piano. Anyway, uh, every year I'd watch Eurovision and I'd sort of pick up the, the songs and the winning songs. And it just became a thing, you know, some people collect stamps, don't they? Some people collect coins, and I kind of collected Eurovision songs. So, uh, yes, it, it, it's a bit embarrassing to say, but yeah, I, I can play every winning song and probably another couple of hundred kind of classic <laughs> Eurovision songs. And um, yeah, it's just nice uh, to get away from the craziness of Kremlin politics and, and war by sitting down and... and and entering the, the world of Eurovision, just sort of messing about on the piano. And what's been nice the last five years or so, around Eurovision time, we've been doing these these Eurovision piano request hours live. So people have been uh, sending in their requests and I've been sort of playing them live at, at the piano, which has been really nice. You know, a day where you can just forget about um, politics and everything and just, just have a day of music. So that, that's been fun. Um, that, that's astonishing yeah. escapism and just the, the most <laughs> but the most incredible way to sort of free yourself from the, the daily grind uh, just and the, the good thing is for, as far as my wife is concerned I've got one of these 
what they call silent pianos. So it's an ordinary acoustic piano, but it's got this special mode where you can go into electric, ele oh, wow. uh, electronic, and plug in headphones. So she doesn't have to listen to hours of endless Eurovision melodies being played on the piano. I can just sit there and, and, and listen to my yeah, listen to them myself. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and you mentioned uh, earlier that you. Uh, that you, you didn't uh, speak any Russian before starting your uh, degree at Leeds. Can you uh, describe how Leeds contributed to your career and your life? Yeah, I spoke a little bit of Russian because at school, in, the, in lunch times, our French teacher had taught us a little bit of Russian. But yes, basically I started, uh, I did an extra year uh, at the beginning of my course, starting from scratch. Uh, in Leeds and a year out as well so it became a five-year course my Russian studies course and I have such happy memories of Leeds I mean first of all the Russian department uh, I, I absolutely loved the department it was small uh, and it really inspired me uh, to, to fall in love with with the Russian language and and the country I remember every lunchtime they would wheel out into the into the department, this satellite television. They'd just got a satellite and they showed in, in, uh, during the lunch times Soviet TV. And I sat there, I couldn't understand much of it at the time, but I sat there just watching these programs about like combine harvesters uh, going through the fields and perestroika and things like that. I, th I was absolutely hooked. It was fascinating. And it's because of that, really, that I, I, I decided that when I finished my course I wanted to go and work in in Moscow and luckily um, a an English teacher had from Moscow had come over to Leeds um, and was working in the department and she actually uh, gave me a contract a teaching contract so when she went back to the to Moscow to the Moscow machine tool construction Institute as it was known then uh, she gave me a contract to teach English uh, in August 1991 that was my first job so, uh, yeah, I've got a lot to be grateful to, to Leeds for. I had a great time. I, I, I ran the Russian Society um, in the department. We put on concerts, um, all kinds of events. I loved the city. Um, and, yeah, I, I have very happy memories of, uh, of studying and living in Leeds. And if you could go back to any time during your studies at Leeds, what point in time would you go back to? <laughs> well, I mean, the year out that I did, of course, that's not in Leeds, right? But it was during the course. My fourth year was amazing because uh, I did a year in Moscow in 89, 90, as, as the, the Soviet empire was creaking and starting to fall apart. It was an amazing year, an absolutely amazing year, a year of hope, and a year of, of problems uh, for people. So that was an amazing time to be there. And earlier in 89, because Leeds had a, a, uh, an exchange programme with Kiev University, I also did th three months uh, in Kiev in 1989, which was amazing too, a beautiful city. I remember Kiev, the, the chestnut trees in Kiev being absolutely beautiful in bloom. and. Uh, I made friends there in Kiev 89 uh, and I still keep in touch with them to this very day. Um, so that was a very special time. Uh, the, the great thing about the, 
the Russian department in, in, in Leeds was it put the emphasis on language, on speaking Russian. And they also sent us to a, a language course in Minsk in 1988, um, which was brilliant. I still keep in touch with the teacher I had in, in Minsk in 1988. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it, it was a great course with great teachers. Um, you know, I still keep in touch with one, with one of them, Natasha Bogoslavska. It was, it was a, a brilliant course, and I'm really, really glad that I chose Leeds uh, to, to study Russian at. You've been listening to My Lead Story, a podcast series brought to you by the University of Leeds Advancement Team. For more stories about our global Leeds alumni community, follow us on social media at Leeds Alumni. Or if you have a story, email us at alumni at leeds.ac.uk.